Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 281. I'm Douglas Wilson. Thank you for joining us. If you subscribe to Chronicles Magazine, and why shouldn't you, uh, you'll notice that this month's, this month being May, this month's edition has a cover article by me. Now, I was able to land a, a, a slot writing this article for them at Chronicles. I've written for Chronicles a, a few times before, and I submitted this article, but I was astonished, very surprised to find out that it was uh, featured on their cover. And the title of the article is uh, Social Contract Theory as Feathered Serpent. Social Contract Theory as Feathered Serpent. And this might take some explaining, so I was going to explain it for just a little bit. But you can also um, get the uh, get the article at by getting a copy of Chronicles magazine. So uh, I recently read uh, Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick uh, Deneen, and uh, he was critical of the, of the classical liberal project and had a lot of negative things to say about it. And uh, he was, well, he was like a little boy running away from home who makes it out to the end of the driveway and then, and then stalls out. But the thing that I enjoyed about Deneen's book is that he reminded me yet again, and I love to be reminded of this, of how much I hate social contract theory. And here I'm talking about the left-wing forms of it, Rousseau and Hobbes, and also the right-wing forms of it, uh, John Locke. John Locke was more interested in preserving and protecting individual liberty, but still, it's a right-wing form of social contract theory. Now, what, what is my beef with social contract theory, and how does the feathered serpent come into it? Well, one of the things I discuss in the article is that many tribes, many peoples, many nations have what you might call founding myths. And one of them was this, um, in Central America, was the idea of a feathered serpent being back there at the founding of this people. Where, where, did, where do we come from? What, are we, what obligations are we under? How should we, be, how should we behave on the way? And uh, this, uh, I think it's Mayan, feathered serpent, this is the mythological account that they uh, give for themselves. Now, it's easy for educated moderns to say, ho, 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 you know, there are no feathered serpents. It, that, that didn't exist. But here's the problem. In social contract theory, the idea is in this pristine, utopian place, the human race gathered, and all the individuals surrendered their native liberty in exchange for the social arrangement that provides them with security. Now, the problem with this social contract is that it never happened. Just like the feathered serpent, this is an origins myth. And that, this is my basic point. The social contract theory is an origins myth. It didn't happen, and, it, and you don't fix the problem by acknowledging that it never happened. 
And the thing that's really striking to me is why Christians would go along with social contract theory when we have a, an origins myth that really did happen. Uh, in other words, there, there was a true social covenant. There was a true social contract in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were placed there. They, the entire human race was there. They were told not to do something, not to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. And they were told what would happen, what the consequences would be if they did eat from the tree. And they ate from it anyway, and our race was plunged into sin, plunged into, uh, and death entered the world through one man. Now, when you postulate a social contract that never, ever happened, the people who showed up at that, at that parliament, the people who showed up at that Congress, they can vote any way you want them to vote because, get this, they were never born. <laughs> they are infinitely malleable. You can make that contract go any way you want. But the Genesis account goes one way. The Genesis account is written down for us. We receive it, and we, we have the option of believing it or not believing it. But we don't have the option of making it up as we go along. So social contract theory is an origins myth. There's no reason at all for believing it, for accepting it. And uh, the part of the reason for accepting it is that it, uh, the alternative to it is to accept the biblical account of creation. Although Locke and Rousseau and Hobbes were writing some time before Darwin, uh, the, the wide acceptance of Darwin across our educated classes made it necessary for them to have an origins myth like social contract theory, because the only alternative to it is an actual origins story, the biblical one. Always will be God. Continuing on with the podcast, this is episode 281. Uh, we continue in our dogged and faithful study of all the various sins in the New Testament. Our word for this lesson is eretizo, eretizo, which means to provoke. Okay, like a number of the other words that we've studied, whether or not it's a sin depends on what you're provoking the other person to do and how you're doing it. What are you trying to get them to do with your provocation, and what is your manner while you're provoking? For example, there's a godly example of provocation using this word, erethizo, uh, uh, and it's in 2 Corinthians 9.2. For I know the forwardness of your mind for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Okay? So, Paul is telling the Corinthians that his reporting of their eagerness to give had been a godly provocation to the Macedonians. So, the Achaeans' generosity, Achaia is southern Greece, Macedonia is northern Greece. So, Paul had gotten a pledge from the Achaeans, and he'd been bragging on them, and his bragging on the Achaeans' generosity had provoked the Macedonians, and now Paul is using the Macedonians' generosity as a way of provoking the Achaeans to, to prove good on their, uh, on their pledge. This is a provocation to love and good works. But there's also a sinful way to go. In Colossians, Paul uses the same word in an admonition given to fathers. He says, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Colossians 3.21 
Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. So the provocation that's forbidden here is the provocation that fathers might be guilty of with regard to children. In other words, it's a provocation that someone in authority might indulge in with regard to someone under their authority. This means that it's likely a provocation that comes from exercises of authority. Now, two ways of doing this, provoking your children to wrath, two ways of doing this occur to me. One would be when the father, when fathers place unreasonable standards on their children. And the other would be when fathers have reasonable standards, but they keep changing them all around. Uh, the kids never know where they are exactly. So, um, if a father took his son out into the backyard and said, told him to uh, lift this boulder that weighs a couple of tons, and then he punished him for not doing it, that's an unreasonable standard of one sort. But suppose he um, kept giving contradictory commands. He's provoking to wrath. He's provoking to anger in another way. He's saying, wait, here, here, pick up this rock. No, no, wait, go do that. No, wait, go do this. Why aren't you doing, why aren't you doing what I said? God don't never change. He's God. All right, so continuing on with the podcast, episode 281, my book uh, review, the book that I want to review uh, this time around is The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. I don't know how many times I've read The Hobbit, and I just finished it again, and had a wonderful time through it. It was brought home to me fresh again that The Hobbit begins, as C.S. Lewis points out somewhere, The Hobbit begins as a very homely, like a children's story with a little um, out-of-breath Hobbit (laughs) running down the road. And the episode with the trolls, for example, their first adventure, it's, it's very much like a like a folk tale. But by the end of The Hobbit, with the Battle of the Five Armies, well, going earlier uh, with uh, the battle at Lake Town, when the dragon flies out uh, over Lake Town, attacking the town, and Bard, uh, the grim one, kills the dragon, effectively kills the dragon. And then it, you have the Battle of the Five Armies uh, after that. By the end of the book, it is high epic. So uh, it's this little, like a Hansel and Gretel folktale at the beginning, where you've got little earthy characters and petty adventures and narrow scrapes, but everything seems pretty ordinary world. But then when you, probably the transition is in the, the capture by the orcs and Bilbo's acquisition of the ring, and everything starts to heat up. And it's like you're walking up it's like you're walking up the foothills to the Rockies. You know, let's say you started, started in Nebraska, and as you hike west, you gain altitude, you're really uh, picking up speed, and then the peaks come before you, and all of a sudden you are in this adventure that is far, far bigger than what you started with. Now, uh, somebody's going to ask, and I'll, let me head you off, so somebody's going to ask what I thought of the movie. And I will have to confess right here that I can't tell you because I have not seen the movie. I have um, maybe, I may have made it through one of Peter Jackson's um, 
Lord of the Rings movie, but I don't think I did. I've, I've not watched the whole series, so I've basically I'm not the uh, I'm not the one you want to ask. It's the sort of thing where C.S. Lewis points out in his uh, essay called "On Stories." He is complaining about a cinematic adaptation of King Solomon's Mines, and he says uh, the the men who in the book they're trapped among the mummies of the dead in a cave, and and it's black, and it, you know it's just a silent, quiet way to die. And he said the filmmaker substituted for this a volcano and an earthquake, and and he and he's making the point that the issue is not the fact that. He substituted one danger for another. The issue was he substituted a particular kind of danger for another. And he said maybe he was obeying the rules of his craft and the ending in the book or the scrape that they were in in the book would not have been filmable. And so he's obeying the canons of cinematography. And I had the same attitude toward, uh, I saw at least as far as Helm's Deep in one of them. and. And I remember being struck by Aragorn and Legolas having some sort of emotional clash every few minutes. Uh, I think, what? Why is that? Well, I bet there's some sort of uh, filmmaker's uh, rule that you have to have some sort of tension and release every, every so often. Well, Tolkien knows his craft, and he just takes us gradually from one sort of world to another. And by the end of The Hobbit, you're in the world. He, he has successfully set the stage for the world in which Lord of the Rings happens. You've got this broad world that the Shire is a subset of. When you begin The Hobbit, all it is is the Shire. And that's all you know. That's the only thing you know. And so that's where, that's as far as it goes. But then you get a glimpse of how big the world is by the end of The Hobbit and how the Shire is just one little piece of it. And that's the world that you're in for the entirety of The Lord of the Rings. Anyway, if you've never read The Hobbit, shame on you, read it. If you have read it, do what I just did, read it again.